As we turn to the closing books of the New Testament, James through 3 John, we are faced again with a penetrating analysis of the source of hatred in the world, the explosive violence that results, and the struggle for power. Dave Wurtson, our study leader, takes us today to the source, James, Peter, and John's answer to this question. What does the evil one's present world look like, and what is Christ doing about it? I want you to learn that you want to live in a real world. I want you to be a person that actually goes outside, doesn't believe what people tell you. And what I believe ultimately that the scripture tells you what the world is really like. One of the things I've been discouraged about, there was a new bombing in Athens. And uh, they shot a rocket over our embassy in Athens. And it's not even Al-Qaeda. It's a brand new terrorist organization. How many of you heard about that? And that discouraged me. Like, here's another enemy that's coming. As I walked into church today, one of the girls with a beautiful, precious baby, she's going to be staying with her mom and dad and be part of our church family for the next several months. Why? Because her husband is fighting in Afghanistan. We live in a very dangerous world. The world right now is filled with conflict. Why is he in Afghanistan? Well, you'll remember, a lot of America has forgotten, but if you'll remember, we actually saw pictures of women lined up in the soccer stadium in Kabul. And we watched them being executed, many times for false charges of adultery. What we're sharing is that as I look at the world, the world is filled with conflict. In other words, the Democrats have just taken over the host. That The first woman to be the head of the Congress says, I promise this is going to be peace on earth, goodwill towards men, and we're going to all be nonpartisan and everything. And the very next day, war broke out in the Senate, right? Have you noticed that? It's not peace. It's conflict. So would you agree that in the world that you live in, that the present world that you live in is filled with conflict? Is it? Do you agree with me? Yeah. What I want you to think about is, why is that so? And we've been studying in the Bible, one of the things that I want it to be is that whenever you open this book, I want you to know what the story is. I want you to know there's 66 books here, but it all unites together. And so what we've been doing over the last several months is we've been telling his story, reminding you that God gives you revelation about what's actually happening in history. And that's what I want you to understand. And we learned that at the very beginning of history as we know it, the human race that you're a part of, an Adam and Eve that generated the human race, a garden that, would, that they were expelled from, and then the human race developed from them, the world, and then we trace that history from Adam to Cain to Noah, the world's destroyed. Noah's family eventually produces Abraham, who produces the Jewish people, the history of King David, and then the history of the divided kingdom right on through the intertestamental period to the time of Jesus. What I want you to know that the Bible tells you a story of connected history, and it tells you what the story of that history, the plot that's behind that. If you haven't been with us, just to review a little bit, like every good story that I taught you, like if you pick up Anne Karina, I had students last week that could do different readings. One of the readings I had them do was Anne Karina. It's the greatest novel ever written, labeled that by a lot of literature people. 
Tolstoy begins his novel giving you the theme of the whole story. And I've told you this often. He starts out with a line that the thought of the line is that you can have bad families, you can have screwed up marriages, you can have families that blow apart in a million different ways. There's a million different ways for you to really mess up your married life. But good families are all alike. And what he's saying is that the qualities and the characteristics of a good marriage, of a good father, mother, son, and daughter relationship follows very common lines. And what he does in the rest of the novel is that he has a good family that represents the good side, and you learn all about them. It's very realistic. They struggle. They have problems. They're not perfect. But it tells you the dynamics of what Tolstoy believed is a good marriage, a good family. And Karina is his main character, and she's a bad girl. The whole story is about her. And she's into finding, fulfilling her desires. She's into lust. She's into adultery. And Tolstoy gets you involved in her life, why she does what she does. And she has an affair with a dashing Russian soldier. And they have this incredible exotic affair. And then Tolstoy shows you that you might think this is good, but it ends blowing relationships apart, destroying lives. The plot line that's developed all the way through Anne Karina is introduced, and it happens to be, it's not always in a novel, like Agatha Christie doesn't always give you her key theme statement, or she doesn't reveal to you the beginning clue to who murdered somebody in the dining room, kind of like playing Clue in an Agatha Christie novel. She doesn't always do that in the first line, but in the first chapter, in a good mystery writer, you'll get that this is what the story is going to be about. Those of you who have been with us a long time, what's the verse in the Bible at the very beginning that tells us the story of the Bible, that reveals in seed form what the story of the Bible is? What is it? Genesis 3.15, you got it. And Genesis 3.15 reveals that the story of history is going to be a story of a great conflict. So as you're living in the world, you shouldn't expect peace and earth, goodwill towards men just yet. You should expect there to be a lot of things happening that are filled with strife and war and conflict. Great conflict and struggle. Who is the conflict between? Genesis 3.15 says that the conflict is going to be between two groups of people. What's the name of one of the groups? I will put enmity between you and your seed and the seed of the woman. One of the seeds that's introduced early in the story is the seed of the woman is going to be connected to a great promise of God. There's another seed that's going to be the seed of the serpent. So as you look at the storyline of the Bible, there's going to be that which Satan produces, children that are produced by Satan, that are characterized by him. There's also going to be a seed that flows from Eve that's going to be connected with the creator God. That's going to be a good seed. And remember when I taught you what I called it, the good seed, bad seed story. Good seed represents that. 
Genesis 3.15 also promises you that there's going to be this great conflict between the serpent and his seed, what he's trying to do in the world, and those that follow him, and those that follow the creator God, and that are born of Eve and become the true line. He also focused and promised that there will be, he is going to be a great deliverer that will mortally destroy the serpent, that will eventually wipe the serpent out, and wipe the curse out, and wipe death out. And it's going to be a great male deliverer that will be born of a woman. That's all we know in Genesis 3.15. And it also tells us that in the story, the serpent, just like he tempted Eve and Adam, and just like he was able to wound them and produce the curse of death, that same serpent in the kingdom of evil is going to be able to strike and bite the great male deliverer. And he's going to be bruised in his heel. So we have this story in a seed form all the way through. As we come to our text today, like we, we look at James, as we look at First and Second Peter, as we look at First, Second, Third John, and don't worry, I'm not going to exegete every single verse, but I want to share with you what I do when I'm reading the Bible. So one of the things that I do is I look for this great thematic scheme. How many of you say that as we look at the present world system, as we look at the dominating forces in the world, as we look at what happens that in a lot of times, in the majority of situations in the world, who would you say is ruling this present world? What would you say? Who's ruling this present world? Satan is. How many say, well, no, God's ruling this present world? What do you think? How many vote for God ruling this present world? How many vote for the evil one ruling this present world? Like, well, you're all biblicists. Why do you believe that? And so you see, it doesn't make any difference what I teach you. What is God's revelation? Turn to 1 John chapter 5 and let's ask the Apostle John. If you don't know that much about the Bible, John was Jesus' most loved disciple. He was the one that was closest to Jesus. And he was used to be a pastor, for example, in the church of Ephesus for many years. He's probably writing back to the church of Ephesus in this letter. Next week when we say the book of Revelation, John's going to be the disciple that God uses under his spirit's power to give us the last revelation of the New Testament. And he's going to bring a lot of prophetic things together. So look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. And I start out by saying, and we look at verse 18. I'll begin it there so you get in the flow. But I ask myself, John, who do you believe is controlling, ruling? What kingdom am I living in when I go out into the world? He says, we know, John says, we know that anyone born of God, the idea of being born of God, remember, is that going to be good seed or bad seed? Is someone born of God going to be on the good team or the bad team? Good team. It's right here. Why does he use the imagery of birth? Why is it so important to think about it? In fact, John, if you'll study First John, you'll find out he loves to talk about the seed of God that is present in those that believe in Jesus. Where does that come from? Right back at the beginning. It talked about the seed of the woman, what would be generated from Eve, that would eventually produce Jesus, and those that would be committed to God. He also talked about those that would have demon seed inside of them. 
though that would be bad seed. And John talks, as like as you're reading 1 John, he talks a lot about the children of the light. Would they be good guys or bad guys? If you're reading 1 John, obviously, if you read about a children of the light, that's a good person. That's the good part of the story. If I read about a child of darkness, and then he starts describing what the child of darkness does, how they think, what side of my paper am I put that on? You say, well, Dave, this is very impractical. No. Your kids, as you interact with your kids, are they living for the characteristics of a child of darkness? Is that what exciting them? Is that what they want to associate with? And how do I show them that's not such a good idea? And I'm going to give you some hints today about that. Because I believe our faith is very realistic. And so as you're reading this text, I want you to see that these themes, and it's not like John comes right out and says, hey, remember Genesis 3.15. But what he does is he weaves his story. And I believe that the Holy Spirit's doing this, that he weaves it together. It's the same kind of a theme. I've got someone born of God, and therefore the contrast of that would be someone born of the evil. Those that are born of God do not continue to sin. In other words, someone that really has... Jesus' seed in their life doesn't sin continually and easily, and it doesn't bother them. That's what John is saying. What John is saying is if you have the character of Jesus in your life, he really makes changes in your life. So as you live with him, you might have, when you met him, you might have been a very immoral man. One of my students last week shared, as they shared very you know, the Holy Spirit really worked in life, but he shared he was raised in an unbelieving family. His daddy taught him to read Playboy. And his dad bought him those magazines. And so until he was about 19 years of age, his whole view towards women was from intense pornographic literature. Then he met somebody like you, who told him about how you could be born of God, and he met Jesus, and he shared how, and I'll share with you later, he shared with you how the struggle continues in his life, but he also shared, and don't let me forget, I'll try to close, by talking about how he expressed about now that he's been born of God, and now that he's living with God, what the new Jesus seed and Jesus' nature inside of him was helping him to do that. Does that make sense? So, that's, so this is very real. It's very real in my own life. It's very real. Then he says this. He says, the one who's born of God, God keeps him safe. Is that amen? If you're one of God's seed, then if you're a mom, one of your biggest things that you're afraid. You know, what's going to happen in life? Well, if you have Jesus in your heart then you know my ultimately in the midst of enemy territory, God's going to keep me safe. That eventually I'm going to be okay. I'm protected. God keeps us safe. And the evil one cannot harm us. Ultimately, the greatest enemy of our soul, if we're born of Jesus, ultimately the evil one can't get us. Amen? Isn't that incredible? So your Savior actually tells you in the midst of the conflict, you're going to win. That's a really cool thing to know. I mean, I can take a lot of heat in the present if, and a lot of conflict and a lot of struggle if I know how it ends when the, when the clock runs out. And I won. 
Doesn't that help? It really helps. And that's what John is telling you. Then he says this. We know that we are children of God. And I pray that all of you, one of John's major thoughts, and if you don't know that, like if you don't know for sure that you're a child of God, then go back and read 1 John because one of John's major ideas is to help you to know that you're a child of God. He says, he said, these things have I written unto you that you might know that you have eternal life and this life is found in his son. So one of his purposes so that you can be sure that you're a child of God. Then he says this, we know that we're the children of God, but look what else he knows. And that the whole world is under the control of who? Jesus. And so the joy we had at Christmas is going to be continued throughout the year. People are going to continue to be nice to us in stores. Our kids are going to have the same joy that they had on Christmas morning after we gave them all the toys that they wanted. The same beautiful, pleasant, nostalgic, tender feelings are going to continue, right? No, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. What does that mean? What it means is, for example, in the, just before the Christmas holiday, as a church family, we've all experienced, because one of our brothers in Christ and our sister in Christ, the Frito family, who I've shared with you through the years, motivates me in prayer. And as the pastor of the Methodist Church, he challenges me about the unity of the body of Christ. He's just a really dear man of God. And suddenly, I get a call right on a Sunday morning that Carl's son, Dwayne, that he had just bragged about, and how proud he was because he just had become a policeman. He's dead because of a drunk driver. And I throw my hands up. Why? When our own family, when David got killed and I got the call that David, uh, Mary's 15-year-old brother that I've shared with you through the years, had been killed by a drunk driver. I throw my hands up and I cry and I'm angry and I'm frustrated. And there's a temptation to feel like, God, what are you doing? Why did you allow that? And a lot of people that I work with become very angry with God. But I want you to, one thing I want you to do is, it's not what the media tells you. It's not even what I might think in my own heart. But according to 1 John, who presently controls the world? The evil one does. So the Bible does teach, to put things in perspective, all things work together for good. My heavenly Father ultimately writes the story. But as he writes the story right now, as I read his real world, he tells me that the, I'm living in a Taliban spiritual evil kingdom, that you might say. I live in enemy territory. So one of the things that will happen is in this enemy territory, some really bad things, evil things, because it's the evil one that's controlling it, death, accidents, sickness, I live in a world right now where a lot of crud happens that doesn't make any sense. And when I read God's inspired word, he says, that's because in the present flow of time, we're living in a time period where the ultimate good God and good king has allowed tremendous rebellion and things totally against his will to take place. And the Bible reveals to you some reasons why that's so. But what it causes me to live, it causes me to be very real. And I don't say, well, I'm not going to tell anybody else about Jesus. Carl's son got killed. And I'm not going to go over there and pray with them because I think that the whole world is, it's just horrible. I don't have anything to do. 
No, I'm able to say, I hate what happened. I'm angry about what happened. I'm furious. I cry out in agony like the psalmists do. You know, God, you know, why is evil ruling? Why is it reigning? Why does it look like it won? And I'm very honest and realistic. I can even pray to God like that. But I don't have to turn away from God. Because my Heavenly Father hugs me and says, David, this world doesn't totally express my heart in a lot of situations. And I told you, you're one of my soldiers and a tremendous wound took place because you're in conflict with evil. And it's not pretend. And the whole world is under the control of the evil one and you're living in enemy territory. And that's what the Bible's about. Now, as I wrestle with my kids and raising my kids and also thinking about it in my own heart, you have to decide which kingdom you want to live in. And I'm not talking about whether you're going to be a Protestant or a Roman Catholic or a Mormon or whatever you're going to be. This is real stuff. I think you need to decide. It's not another part of my life that I just do on Sunday morning. Deep in my soul, I have to decide. Am I going to be part of the kingdom of the bad seed? Or am I going to be part of the kingdom of the good seed? And the way Mary and I taught our kids is, we're going to teach you very realistically... Not pretend, but we're going to teach you very realistically about the bad seed. Like you will meet really immoral people in our ministry, and you're going to find out what they really, really do. And you're going to work, because I'm a pastor teacher, and my wife's up to her armpits and the same stuff that I am. You'll actually meet people that really do take drugs, and we're going to be working with those people that took drugs, and you're going to really see from the time you're a little bitty kid what that life really produces. And you will see drunks vomit all over the place because they're sick. And you're going to live. We're going to show you. And you can ask me any question you want about what the world under the dominion of Satan is actually like. We're also going to show you what the kingdom of Jesus is like. And so in this church family, at Christmas, we're going to actually have a birthday party for Jesus, which we did several years ago, because Christmas really is about Jesus' birthday. And so we're going to actually just enact that. We're going to have a regular party with cakes and all, and balloons all over the place, so you as a little kid learn that Jesus' kingdom is about celebrating, about joy, about, about really cool parties where people connect together and they really have fun and they really love each other. That was part of what we thought the Word of God taught about the kingdom of God. What I want to do for the next few minutes is to show you. When you read James, for example, I ask myself very honestly, okay, what's the kingdom of the evil one like? What's the kingdom of Jesus like? And which one do I want to be a part of? So very honestly, what's the kingdom, this present world kingdom, that the evil one controls, what is it like? And I can just give you a taste of this this morning, but hopefully I'll whet your appetite that you'll put in the sheet of paper, Satan's kingdom, and you'll be reading about it. Here's some of the things that all these epistles near the end of the Bible reveal about Satan's kingdom. Look at James chapter 1, verse 10, and, and I, hopefully I'll illustrate how you can read the Bible for yourself and face it. Look what it says in James chapter 1, verse 10. The one who is rich. How many of you would like to be rich? I would. Come on, I would like to be rich. How many of you feel, if I were rich, and I need to make that the number one goal of my life, because if I was rich, then I would have everything I need. Life would be complete, it would be good, and everything would be fine. 
Well, you're all on it. It's no idea like this. You're committed. But you need to teach your kids life. In the real world, you found out the media told you. They really did. Man, it's in Manfield now. Watch out. My Canadian friends would be howling this morning. My friends in Ottawa, they would be saying, what in the world? It's hit Mansfield. The frost level. It's at it's 50 feet above the ground. It's coming down to 25 feet. Now it's down. Watch out! Ah! Like this. And they're going, what in the world is going on here? Do you people walk outside? You can, you can find out if you slide down your driveway whether or not it's below the temperature. You see what I'm saying? We found out, hey, people can be really misinformed. So I asked myself, riches. It's something, there's a part of me that really wants to have it. Is it something I should want to have? Look what it says. But the rich should take pride in his low position. That sounds nutty. Rich people exalt in their power. Rich people exalt in all the stuff they have and that they have everything together. And you're going to meet rich people that are arrogant and they have all the wealth that they want. You're also going to meet rich people that believe this and they're not prideful at all. They're humble. It says the rich people take pride in their low position. Now, what is their low position? The rich people that are part of Jesus' kingdom understand reality. And you say, Dave, what is reality? Why does a rich person, why does James teach, and this is the half-brother of Jesus, why does James teach a rich person? You shouldn't be arrogant. You should be very humble, and you should focus on your low position. And I ask him, what is my low position? He says it's because you will pass away like a blue bonnet in Texas in the spring. That's what he says. You will pass away like a wildflower, for the sun will rise and will scorch you with heat. It will wither your plant, and your blossom will fall and its beauty will be destroyed. In the same way, you as a rich person will fade away even while you go about your business. Now, I want to ask you, is that true or not? Now, is it objectively true? Yes. It's objectively true. Satan's kingdom, one of the ideas in Satan's kingdom, the Bible doesn't teach, by the way, is riches part of just Satan's kingdom? No, you need to ask yourself, like as I study all the Bible, is James teaching riches is the bad thing? Is that what he taught even in this passage? And so that everybody needs to take vows of poverty? Is that what the scripture teaches? The scripture could teach that. Does it? Does your heavenly daddy say, one day you're going to live in the slums of the most third-rate country you can imagine? You're going to live in cardboard and you're going to eat dirty food and dirty water, you're going to live like dogs. That's my plan for you. Is that what God has told you? No. What does your heavenly father tell you? One day you're going to live in a city whose streets are gold's pretty rich. I often use the phrase, your heavenly daddy, what we think is really priceless. He uses it for gravel. You know, he uses it to pave the streets. It's the cement of heaven. And that means that there's something that much higher that's worth so much more. It's objectively true It doesn't make any difference. How you feel about it is a rich person's wealth doesn't give them eternity. And their wealth objectively can be lost just like that because Satan's kingdom, one of the things, James says it, 1 Peter says it, all these final books of the Bible are going to tell you the present world's kingdom is temporary, uncertain, and fragile. So you teach that as you read, you put that on your paper. How many of you believe that that's true? The present world kingdom is temporary, fragile, and uncertain. 
And that's true. So you teach your kids. You give them illustration of that. Let me share what else. The present world is controlled by enslaving, destructive passions which turn to death. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's look at verse 11. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 11. The present world kingdom, Peter says, is controlled. Dear friends. So Peter's relating to us very personally. Dear, my dear friends, I urge you. As aliens and strangers in the world, the world that's controlled by the evil one, one of Peter's strong messages is that we're not residents of the present kingdom of darkness, that we're just passing through, we're pilgrims, and that we are from another land, that we're in our home in another land. Big idea. That's where John Bunyan got the idea for pilgrim's progress. A pilgrim is not at home. He's on a journey. Where did he get that from? Right out of 1 Peter. He says, Dear friends, I urge you that you're an alien to this present kingdom of darkness. It's going to be your temporary place to live. You are migrant workers, you might say, in this present world. That's the picture that's used here. Therefore, I want you to abstain from the sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans. That would be the idea of live such good lives among the people that are still under Satan's slavery, under his domain, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds, see your life, see the good way that you found to live, and therefore glorify God in the day he visits us. To abstain from sinful desires which war against your souls. And he goes on later on in the book and talks about all the former things that that people used to do. And you can look at that. I want to ask you, how many of you have ever felt, I'm going to quit my walk with the Lord because my life is a struggle? How many of you, during this past week, it feels like your internal life is a battle between good and evil? Anybody feel that at all? How many of you feel it's like my internal structure in my life is like a wrestling match? It's like there's a good guy, a good girl in my, in my life, and there's a real, man, there's a really bad person. Anybody feel that? Okay. How many of you have ever felt, I don't want to tell that to anybody, because if I ever admit that that's true, then I'm out of here. In other words, I'm having struggle, okay? Like, my friend that I shared with you about the pornography, he was raised all of his life until he was 19 that when it comes to sexual things, Playboy and Penthouse is the answer. And then he shared how he came to know Jesus. And what he shared was that there's a great struggle going on in his life. He's a pastor. And he's in a church where he's ministering to hundreds of people in very close contact with sisters in Christ and those that are older that would be like mothers in Christ. And he's from this background and he was sharing about the wrestling match that takes place. Does the scripture teach us that he should be thrown out of the ministry and not be accepted because he's struggling? No. It says that there's a war going on in your soul. And my brother went on to share how the Lord is teaching him about the new kingdom. And a new kingdom where you can have relationships, like you have erotic relationships with the one woman that God has ordained for you to marry. And you relish the eroticism of being a one-woman man and a one-man woman, and you enjoy all those sexual experiences. Then you have relationships between the sexes that are like family, 
Like Timothy is told, treat the younger women like your sister. And so my friend went on to explain, explain how that was a very liberating thing for him that the Lord started to teach him that women are not just physical objects to conquer or to use for pleasure, but they are like sisters to get to know, to protect. And like one thing that he said is, I want to be a man where all the women that are related to me feel protected in my presence because they're my sister. Just like a brother protects his sister, that the Lord is teaching me that I become a man that where she's safe because it's my brother. And he talked about how the Lord opened up this whole new dimension. Like Jesus himself, for example, had women that traveled with him, like Mary, his mother, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary. They brought money. They made food. They traveled with his disciples. There was not a hint of immorality. They were family. In our own church family, we make a major point that you are brothers and sisters. And my friend shared how that brought health. And then he shared how his commitment to Jesus, he said the movie The Gladiator really touches his life. And in very moving terms, at the culmination of Gladiator, Gladiator, the reason it captured your attention, it's a story of a bad guy who's the emperor's son, who kills the true emperor and seizes the throne, kills Maximus's wife and kids, throws him into slavery in the slave side of the Roman Empire and thinks he's done with him. And the story is of Maximus rising up through the gladiator force and the conflict is between this horrible, just squirrely, you know, guy that you just want to get rid of. He's so awful. And Maximus. At the culmination in the Colosseum, the gladiator had been wounded because the false emperor had him wounded illegitimately. He just had a guy just knife him. So his strength is easing out of him. And he's dying. And so the, the emperor is able to wow all of his spectators because he's beating the great gladiator. And the gladiator's mass. The gladiator's down. He's getting ready to die. And the emperor, the false emperor that killed his wife and son, goes over near him and says, Gladiator, who are you? Tell me who you are. Take off your mask. Reveal your identity. And he takes off his mask and he says, I am Maximus, the devoted protector and general of the true emperor. I am Maximus, the ruler, the general that commands the armies of the north. And my friend said, Jesus has given me the helmet of salvation. And when I'm in this struggle with lust, that I remember that I have the helmet and the helmet is the salvation that Jesus has provided for me. It guards my thought life. It transforms my thinking. And I remember that through the new power of Jesus living in me, that I follow the ruler of the armies of the north. And I follow the true emperor. And therefore, through the power of Jesus' spirit flowing through me, taking the helmet of salvation which protects my thought life, that I don't As have to, to the have a woman the New that I lust after, James through but a woman John, that I pray for. We are faced again and that a woman, a even if she's an Angelina Jolie character that is seeking to even make money by tempting and lust, 
and this struggle that I can power. even pray that that woman Wurtzen, one day might Peter, be touched by Jesus, might be transformed, might become a new Peter creation. And, and rather than being pulled question, into the kingdom of darkness, I become like a magnet that's pulling people like into the kingdom of life. That's powerful stuff. Doing and that's what the Lord wants you men to do. He wants you ladies to do that. Not necessarily from the visual gate, but from the relational gate where you get close friends that are not your legitimate lover and you start to let them take an erotic intimacy with you through emotion that is wrong. You remember you have the helmet of salvation and you need to talk to your kids about this conflict. What do you all say? The kingdom of light challenged me as a young guy to be a one-woman man. It taught me to wait till I could make a covenant with a woman that I would be pure with and she would be pure with me and then we would raise our kids within that protective security or castle and we would teach them about relying upon the, the devotion of Christ. How many of you think, is that a better way to live than as if I was marrying Janae to a guy and I'd been married five or six times and I was presently living with someone that was just fulfilling my physical desires? What do you think? You choose. And one thing I want you to realize, if you've lived that other story, the immoral story, it's okay. You're in a good place. We're not going to tell you, though, that that immoral story is really good and you can just happy-go-lucky stay in that story. We're going to be telling you, you might have lived the worst story imaginable. Most of us did too, at least in our thought life. And we've met another king. And in this church family, we're going to teach you about this great kingdom, this great good life. So what we're illustrating is that you read these books, you learn the reality of what the story is. In the second part, you have what the kingdom of darkness really is realistically. Then you also expose what the kingdom that we're going to be living in eventually. I just, what I share with you, the future will be eternally secure and filled with life. That's like a place I want to go. The future kingdom of Jesus that I can presently begin to experience now is going to be a kingdom that's filled with love. First John says, here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. God is love. It's his major theme statement. I want to go someplace eventually that's totally dominated by love. How about you? It's a good thing. I want my kids to get in on that. God's kingdom is expressed through pure, considerate, submissive, merciful, impartial, peace-producing wisdom. How many of you like someone that's easy to talk to? It's considerate to you. Takes the time to really listen to you. Deep in your soul, is that better than someone that has to always be right and dominates you and forces you and just every subject you bring up, they already know the answer to it? Who would you rather live with? A person that's considerate, gentle, easy to entreat, seeks to produce peace in a relationship, or an arrogance. What do you want to be? This is the way the Bible really thinks. It says, this is what's really happening in Satan's kingdom. Here's what really happens in God's kingdom. Now you choose whether you're going to let Jesus come to live in your life. I close with some verses that I gave you. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. And John says, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. So on this cold, snowy day, I would say this week, as you go out to live, dear my children, don't let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is a righteous person. 
just as he, the Lord Jesus, is that he is talking about, is righteous. So if Jesus is in your life, he's going to help you to slowly but surely learn to do what is right. He who does what is sinful is of the devil. So if your kids are constantly doing devilish things and they have no remorse about it, you need to understand maybe they haven't come to know Jesus yet. You might have a 15-year-old living in your life that's really a, a child of the evil one. That's where they're at. So pray about it that way. When I'm talking with somebody, I've actually had teenagers that say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. I say, well, tell me a little bit about your love for him. They say, I, 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 don't, I don't know him at all. I, what I really love, I love, I'm just fascinated with really cruel, bloody murders. I just love to read about those. In fact, I'm scintillated by the idea of maybe being able to actually experience that. And I, and I actually love getting drunk and I love taking drugs. I'm being extreme. And then the proud, I say, well, you know, you're telling me that, that what you live for every single day and what you devote your time for is all this stuff, and this is the stuff that put Jesus on the cross. That's why he had to die. And you're saying, I just relish this stuff. I, I love this stuff just to keep happening. And what I tell him is, I don't know where you really stand with Jesus, but it's possible you haven't met him yet. That's the way the New Testament talks. And it's very honest about that. He says, if you're a child of God... You will start to do the things that the devil doesn't want you to do. You'll start to do what Jesus wants you to do. He says, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. When was the beginning that you first know about Satan sinning? Genesis 3. That goes back to the beginning of the story. In the garden, he sinned. He, and he'd sinned before that. But that's the first in recorded history that we know about it. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. We started out today. What did Genesis 3.15 would be the purpose of Jesus coming into the world? What would Jesus come into the world to do? To destroy the serpent's work. And John's just reminding you of that. He says, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed, where did that idea come from? If you've received Jesus as your Savior, God's seed lives in you. Let that seed grow. Let that new life of Jesus grow. He cannot go and sin because he was born of God. This is how we know the children of God, and this is how we know the children of the devil. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor anyone who does not love his brother. So this is what it's saying. You need to be really honest with your life. If there's a struggle, but deep in your soul, you really want to be a loving person, and that's a sign that Jesus is coming to your life. If you wrestle with immorality but you take the helmet of salvation and there's a part of you that says, that's what I really want to grow in. And you start to see the Holy Spirit giving you growth in that area. Then you're a child of the light. That's evidence that God has created his new life inside of you. But if you're a person that just knows all this stuff, talks the biblical language, talks about Jesus dying on the cross, rising again, but you leave this room and you love Playboy magazine. It's not a struggle at all for you. You just want to make sure nobody ever finds out about it. Or you can hardly wait late at night to look on the internet. And that's just one example. Or if you're a businessman that goes out this week and says, you know, I'm not going to think about Jesus for the next six days. It's going to be about making money. And I make decisions based upon money. I fire people and hire them based just upon making money. Because that's what I'm after. I want to be rich, and I want to live in one of those big Highland Park mansions, and I want to be able to pay people to put up my Christmas lights because I don't want to fall off a ladder. Then that's who you are, and you should be very honest about it. 
And I'm also challenging you today, realistically, I want to challenge you to ask yourself what's really true. Which life is really connected with reality? And when I get all done, will I find out that I live in the right kingdom? So what it means for you this week, like if what I told you is true, then it's real important for you to spend more time this week with your Savior, listening to him, learning what he's really like, what he's not like what he really emotionally responds to, what he doesn't respond to at all, what he thinks is really good and what he doesn't think is really good. So what it means this afternoon, as you're watching NFL football, you say, Jesus, you know, what do you think about this? Well, if you're real super legalistic, you say, well, I never watched this. Well, I would say to you, well, evidently Paul didn't have video, but he evidently watched the Isthmian games because every time he turns around, he tells me a story about Olympic athletic contest and when he talks to timothy he talks to timothy about being an athlete and in philippians when he talks about what how he wants to illustrate the christian life he talked to him about running the race that you might win so evidently the biblical jesus is really into sports jesus might enjoy experiencing this with me when they keep having a cameraman that his job is to find the chick and I say, well, it's okay for me just to lust. What does Jesus think about that? And what about my response to that? And what does that do to Mary if my internal structure as her husband is trying to look at the beautiful exposed forms of a cowboy cheerleader? What do you do with that? And as a man, if you're just into exterior things, like I've ministered in counseling to former cowboy cheerleaders. And if you think, well, if I could just connect with one of them, I'd find heaven on earth, everything would be fine. Man, the last thing in the world I'd ever want to do is connect with them. And by God's grace, the Lord has worked in some of their lives. But what they were living in back then, oh, man, I want to run like a jackrabbit. I get away from it because it's scary to me. And I run into Mary's arms and say, oh, thank you for a woman that's going to be safe and tell me the truth and, and not be getting with someone else. That's what the Bible enables you to do. You can live. You can face what's really going on inside of you. You can let the Holy Spirit expose what you're angry about, what you're jealous about, and then you let them transform you. So it's your call. You're going to get to live your life one time. I would like you to get really serious about letting the Bible expose to you what the good kingdom is, what the bad kingdom is, how Jesus delivers you out of the kingdom of evil into a kingdom of light. If you haven't come to know Jesus like that, you're in a great place. We would be glad to teach you more about how Jesus died for you and he rose again. And we're really serious about this. We don't want any of you to miss this incredible privilege of having Jesus in your heart. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter. Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.